Well, good morning. morning. Have uh, before we get into the message, and I also want to ask if there's anybody that had um, any reports back from the challenge we issued, I issued last week. But I need to ask a favor of all of you. Um, I am, bless you. I am uh, finally nearing the end of my journey through higher education. Yeah. And one of the very last aspects of this is something that they refer to as the ministry intervention or the ministry project, okay? And uh, for me, in what I'm doing, it means that there will be four sermons or four messages during the month of May in three classes that I'm going to plan on doing on Wednesday evenings. So at least my home group will be here. (laughs) Um, The classes are going to be from, I'm guessing, 7 to maybe 8.30, just depending upon questions and things like that. I will provide dessert and coffee and drinks. So if you want to just come, uh, I'm very much willing to bribe you to be here. Um, because if I don't get at least 20 people, um, it somewhat invalidates the results. So 20 people in this case are statistically significant. Uh, So bring your friends. (laughs) More than 20 is wonderful, and all I'm going to ask you to do at the end is just fill out a little questionnaire. It's, I think, eight questions and then one optional one if you have any other comments. Um, And most of it, there's only, I think, two long answer. Most of them are just, you know, kind of circle where, answer the question by circling an answer. So um, if you would please, um, those will begin the 6th, I think. It's it's the first Wednesday in May. So it'll be the 6th, the 13th, and the 20th on those three Wednesdays. So if you would please Make a note of that. I will remind you repeatedly until that time. But if you could, you know, at least make a note. Uh, I would really, really appreciate it if you could be here. We're also going to do something a little bit different in that on the the Sundays of the messages, those four messages, uh, I will sometime early afternoon on Sunday send you a link to an online survey. And it'll just have a couple of questions but would ask if you could answer those um, at least maybe by 4 o'clock that afternoon because statistics show that by <clears throat> 4 o'clock on Sunday, you've forgotten about 80 to 90% of what I've said. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case here. That's nationally, though. <laughs> but anyway, so if you could, you know, I, I felt like this is a better alternative than asking people to stay afterwards because people have children, people are hungry, they're tired, whatever. Go home, have lunch, take a nap, and then just spend, you know, a little bit of time reflecting on the survey and just answer the questions that are there. So if you guys would, once again, need at least 20 responses for those. So if you could all kind of pitch in through the month of May, push me through the door, that would be wonderful. and we're going to have, we'll have a big party at the end, somehow or another, I don't know. But um, on those Wednesdays, we will have snacks and stuff, so if you need to come straight here uh, and haven't had a chance to eat something, um, what time? Uh, 6.30 on Wednesdays would be when we'll gather, and then I'll plan to start at 7. So that gives you half an hour if you want to come and get something, get dessert or something like that, and then uh, we'll start at 7, <clears throat> plan to end around 8.30. All right? Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Now, is there anyone that has a story they would like to share? If you recall, last week we sort of issued a challenge uh, for people to go out and uh, pray for somebody, to do the stuff, so to speak. And so I just was curious to see if uh, we had anyone that wanted to share. All right, Susan, you have to come up here. Microphone's right there. No. Now it is. It is now? Yeah. Oh, okay. So this was very transforming because it took me from just looking around, living life, to looking for people. Hmm. 
And uh, so Sunday night, I was going to pick up my daughter. It was a cold, rainy night and very miserable. I passed a little girl, um, Broad and Hamilton, sitting there. Uh, had an umbrella give me any spare, spare change. So I said, gosh, that was quick. So I pulled in the little parking lot, and I went up to her, and I said, well, honey, how'd you get yourself in this spot? Because she, she was pretty young, probably about 17, 18, and she said she had Crohn's disease, which is a very debilitating uh, disease that people can have and often leads to loss of work, loss of job, then you lose your home, onward. So um, I said, well, can I pray for you? And I held her hand, and she was so cold. And that was just, that was rather heartbreaking. Uh, she just had a little sweatshirt on. But anyway, we did pray together. And uh, when I left, I looked over my shoulder, and uh, she said, thank you so much. So that was the first experience. Uh, and I did go by when I went back out with my daughter. She was gone. So I felt, she said, I've managed to keep a room. So I felt like she wasn't completely without shelter. But. Um, the second experience was yesterday at Virginia Beach. I was at a gas station getting gas, and um, I look over, and there's, there's a guy, a uh, big, tall, white dude, <laughs> but he had, the, he had dreadlocks, and he's a very interesting-looking fellow. He had taken a gas can and gone over to another car, and he asked the guy if he could have some gas when he was pumping his gas, and the guy said, sure. And I looked at him, and I thought, gosh, you know, why can't he get a job? And I just had really bad thoughts. And then I thought, wow, that's really awful. You know, I'm making a judgment on this man. I don't know his life. So I went over and I said to him, can I pray for you? And he goes, yeah, man. <laughs> and I, I'm like, wow. Okay, so we had a prayer together. And um, I, you know, I, I, I found the prayer to be really more about myself, quite frankly. Please help me to be a better person and not judge other people. And, but, I mean, I did pray for him as well, that his journey would be good and life would be good and God would be in his life. And then he said to me, can I pray for you? And that was the eye-opener for me. And that took me from being just a person, you know, looking around, to being a seeker, seeking people and not judging them, you know. Who knows, you know, who's, who knows what his life is. And everybody has good in their life and everybody deserves to be loved. So that's my experiences. That is cool. Anybody else? All right, John. It was interesting, Pastor Jeff talking about, you know, what he did last week and challenging us. A week before that, I happened to be in Panera and, you know, just having something to eat. And I saw a girl in a wheelchair and she was obviously got, you know, uh, not just can't walk, but some other things, multiple sclerosis or something like that, I don't know. Uh, I just felt a distinct impression to pray for her, but she was on the phone. And I thought, okay. You know, sat there and she was on the phone, you know, talking. So I went and got something to eat and she'd gone. So when the challenge was last week, it's like, okay, maybe there's another way around this. So uh, straight after church, I went down to Barnes & Noble where I usually go for a cup, you know, a cup of tea or something like that. And I'm a very private person. I don't like going in and invading someone's space. I detest that. And so for me to go up to someone and say, you know, could I pray for you is, yeah, no. Uh, and I've been in ministry for, you know, many years, but still it's a problem to me because I, I, I see so much abuse of people's privacy that, you know, and there's no need for that in the body of Christ as far as I'm concerned. And so for me to see this young girl being brought in uh, in a wheelchair by her mother, and she said, you know, put in the table next to me, and you know, she was talking. They were on the phone, and and then another uh, lady brought her daughter, and so obviously this girl in the wheelchair was uh, tutoring her, 
And, and I, I'm having this impression, pray for her, go and pray for her. And it's like, okay, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they started, you know, going through their tutoring thing. And then all of a sudden, the, the young girl that's being tutored must have done something and knocked over um, a cup of water all over the table, the papers and everything. So they, they sort of um, trying to get... So I go and grab some serviettes, or you call them napkins. Uh, that's, that's Australian for napkins, serviettes. <laughs> so, so I grab a pile of napkins and take it over to her and I give it to them. And I said, do you mind if I pray for you? Just like that. And I said, she said, sure. I said, you know, if you had an accident. She said, no, I had an operation on my hip. And so, you know, and didn't ask names or anything like that. Just let it be like that. Prayed for her. And she said, you don't know how much I appreciate that. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm hoping I'll see her sometime down there and just see how she's going. But just the experience of doing that, you know, for someone in ministry, you think, oh, they do it all the time. No. There's reasons why we don't, because we're just like normal people. Aren't we? <laughs> well, uh, this last week was kind of... I, I didn't pray for this lady this week, but it had been in the past and she came through this week. And uh, I was, I work at Chick-fil-A and I happened to be working in the drive-thru and this lady pulls up and she's got her arm out the window and she's going like this. And I'm like, huh, cool, you know, total is $10. And she's, uh, and she says, you, you don't remember me. She said, you prayed for me uh, last time I came through here. My shoulder was all messed up and I couldn't lift it past here and you prayed for me and when I left, I came back through, and I could move it. I was like, and I actually did remember her then, and she had to, like, you know, awkwardly hand the money to me with her other arm, and um, and her, I guess it was her daughter was in the other seat, and she was just kind of sitting there listening, and it was, uh, it was just kind of a cool testimony of how she came through to share this, this testimony of, of healing, so it was, uh, you know, sometimes people have to wait a little bit longer for their food in the drive-thru, so it's like a perfect opportunity for me to kill some time, distract them from not having food, so that was, uh, that was uh, just my testimony there. Cool. Well, I have to go back a little ways for some of you that weren't here the last time you, um, I told this story. But remember when last year when I told you that Sockham class had said that we needed to ask God to give us a vision of somebody to pray for? And I was going to work that day, and I asked him to give me a vision of someone to pray for. And I got this picture in my mind of this guy you know, the Dunk, Duck Dynasty guy with the beard down to here. And that was the picture that I got in my mind. And I thought, well, it's not going to happen. Well, it did happen within, you know, minutes. After I got to work, I was sitting there, and here walks this guy by with that long beard. Uh, and I was just, you know, like I said, I was freaking out so much that it had happened. Now, he was getting away from me, and I had to actually go running after him <laughs> to pray for him and and after I told him I wasn't crazy I told him my story that God had you know given me a vision of someone with a long beard and I said and so here you are so is there anything I can pray for you for and he said yes as a matter of fact I'm locked out of my house and it happened to be the coldest day of the year I mean it was freezing so if you remember I asked him if I could hold his hand he said no that he did not want to be a part of the prayer, but I could pray for him. So uh, he stood there and just like this, and he just watched me the whole time I prayed for him. So I, and you know, and then he shook my hand and he was on his way. Well, I haven't seen him for a year. 
So Monday, on the way to work, I was asking God to, and Brittany was with me, I was asking him to give me an impression on my heart or just bring somebody into my life for this challenge, you know, where I could pray for somebody. And I look over, and here he comes again. And I almost flipped out, although I didn't. I didn't go running up to him. I walked up to him and I said, are you the one that I prayed for last year? And he goes, yes, I remember you. And I said, well, you're not going to believe it, but I was asking God again this morning to show me somebody to pray for, and here you are again. And I said, so... You know, and I didn't even ask him if he needed anything to pray about because I was so excited that God had brought him into my life. I just wanted him to know how much God loved him and that, you know, he keeps sending you my way, you know, for me to pray for you. And I said, you know, he loves you so much, you know, and, I, and he just wants you to know that. And I said, so you know, can I pray for you again? And he said, yes. So again, he positions himself like this, and he, um, he said, um, I mean, I prayed, you know, just thanking God for him. I don't even know what I said. I know that I just was praising God. I, I think I was jumping a little bit <laughs> up and down. <laughs> but anyway, after that, he um, took my hand, and said, um, you know, my name is Kevin, and um, what is your name again? I said, Bobby, and he said, well, by the way, the prayer worked. He's talking about the last prayer when he got into his house. So uh, anyway, I just thought that was so cool. I just was so excited about that because, you know, he's got to be thinking about that. You know, he has to be thinking about that. So that was... Oh, and then yesterday we were at Chick-fil-A, and um, this was another one who um, the lady was standing there listening to us talking, and um, she just kind of seemed interested in what we were saying, and so, you know, I was able to pray for her, too. She was from Virginia Beach, I think, and, you know, that was just a traveling mercies prayer, but um, it's just actually fun. <laughs> it's just fun to see what God is going to do. So are you saying you might have a ministry as a divine locksmith? Now? <laughs> Anybody else? All right, Mary. Well, my account isn't with a stranger, it was with my son. And you probably don't know, you've seen me close to my daughter and her children. But when my son married, he got very close to his in-laws. And there was kind of a chasm that developed. Anyway, the divorce is going on now. And he actually is getting close because the Lord is speaking with him. And he'll come and visit with us, which is unusual. And I said, well, I'm so glad to have my son back. And he said, well, you don't understand. You're the only two that I can talk to because I don't know anybody that's having the same experiences with the Lord that I do. But anyway, he came up. He was very upset. He's trying to get his life together. And his wife is 50 and she had her first teaching job this year. She started out as a political science teacher, and six weeks into the term, they move her to a math teacher with a class full of students that are all remediation students. They had failed regular math, they had failed algebra, so she got this class that really didn't want to be there and was having real problems with math. And she struggled all year with this class. And her evaluations were not good, yet she's been teaching on and off through the years. And finally, the last one was not good at all. 
So they, Greg talked to me about what to do, and she went in to talk to the principal and explain her reasoning why she had done what she had done. And the principal said, well, it doesn't matter what you think. I've already decided that we're not going to renew your contract, and you are not going to be here next year. Well, you have to understand, with her not having a job, them being divorced, that puts a big responsibility back on my son. She really needed to have that job. So the Lord had laid on my heart that we always prayed after we talked with my son. But he said, you know, that doesn't do any good. You need to pray before so that you hear me and not your own advice. So we did do that, and it went along, and my son is upset, and I just grabbed him and hugged him, and I said, I don't know really what to pray, Greg. It just seems so hopeless. And I know some of you guys are teachers, and it's so difficult even to get a job. So we just prayed that someone who knew her had, could recognize her, could to testify to her abilities against all this negative talk from the principal. And it really was kind of a, a strange evaluation because he brought in things like what other people said about her, which isn't part of an observation, if you guys know. I'm an ex-teacher, okay? And um, not at all like that. So we just prayed for a miracle and that the Lord would send someone that would say, you know what, this woman can really teach. She's a good teacher, and we can't understand this evaluation. He called my husband this last Thursday, and they told her she had a job next year teaching seventh grade math, of all things. So it was like out of nowhere, and it was a totally hopeless, go-nowhere situation. So it had to be the Lord, nothing else. Hmm. So praise cool. God. Well, thank you, all those who, uh, who shared. And, uh, don't stop. You know, keep looking. Be a seeker. I liked what, uh, what Susan, Susan said about that, about going out and seeking people to pray for. So... Well, let's pray before we get this going. Well, Father, I thank you for uh, all those who are gathered here, and I just pray your blessings upon them. I pray that the words that you've given me will touch their hearts, will penetrate their minds, and will move them into uh, a greater level of love and service for you. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live oddly enough, in a country that is afflicted by poverty. In 2013, there were 45.3 million people, which is 14.5% of the population, were in poverty in the United States. We live in a country that's growing increasingly more accepting of same-sex marriage. In 2014, 78% of adults, 18 through 29, believed same-sex marriage should be legal. 54% uh, of adults 30 to 49, 48% of adults 50 to 64, and 42% of adults over 65 believe same-sex marriage should be legal. We live in a country that remains plagued by racism. Despite years of effort, race more than any other demographic factor determines levels of health, wealth, and achievement in the United States. We live in a country that is home to a growing human trafficking industry. Human trafficking generates $9.5 billion annually in the United States. And that's uh, information that comes from the United Nations. Approximately 300,000 children are at risk of being prostituted in the United States. The average age of entry into prostitution for a child victim in the United States is 13 to 14 years old. 
We live in a country that still kills a staggering number of its children. From 1973 through 2011, nearly 53 million legal abortions occurred in the U.S. In 2011, there were 1.06 million. In 2012, 1.02 million. And in 2013, 984,000 abortions took place. We live in a country with an abundance of abandoned children. There are approximately There are approximately 400,000 children living today in the, in the American foster care system. On average, more than 250,000 children in the U.S. enter the foster care system every year. While more than half of these children will eventually return to their parents, the other half actually stays in the foster care system. We live in a country where persecution of Christians is on the rise. True, it has not reached the levels of Christian persecution in the Middle East where every day seems to bring a new video of vicious beheadings by ISIS terrorists of Christians. But make no mistake about it. Increased calls for religious tolerance in America always seems to end up with tolerance for Christians being further eroded. Christians are bullied for their faith in this country. Christians can lose their jobs simply because they believe in the teachings of Jesus. And yes, some Christians in America are hated on account of their association with Jesus. I don't know if you had heard this, but the <clears throat> Student Government Association at, of all places, Johns Hopkins University passed a resolution encouraging the administration not to pursue putting a Chick-fil-A on campus because of its founder's belief in traditional marriage. Now, did Chick-fil-A have any plans to do that? No. There had simply been a student survey that was taken where some number of students had requested that a Chick-fil-A come on campus. And as a result of that, the student government Association, thank goodness, swung into action. We live in a country where dispassionate Christians believe most of the aforementioned issues are undesirable, but who often do little to nothing about them. We live in a country where, by and large, Christians are afraid to oppose the viewpoints and values deemed acceptable by popular culture, even though those viewpoints and values do not align with their self-professed Judeo-Christian worldview. If you ask any popular Christian leader in the public square to make a statement on poverty, on sex trafficking, or the orphan crisis, chances are that that leader will gladly boldly and clearly share his or her convictions on the subject. However, if you ask that same Christian leader in the same public setting to make a statement on homosexuality or abortion, that leader is likely to respond with either nervous hesitancy or virtual heresy if they respond at all. Well, that's not the issue I'm concerned with the leader might say, my, my focus is on this other issue, and that's what I want to speak about. The practical effect of this attitude is evident across contemporary Christianity. We have all sorts of younger evangelicals who write blogs, take pictures, send tweets, attend conferences where they fight to alleviate poverty and end slavery. Evangelicals care for foster children in the United States, and they adopt orphans from around the world. Many of these efforts are good, and we should continue in them. What's problematic, however, 
is when these same evangelicals stay silent in a conversation about more culturally controversial issues like abortion and so-called same-sex marriage. Well, those issues are not my concern, they think. I'm more comfortable talking about other things. But what if Christ commands us to make those issues our concern? And what if Christ's call in our lives is not to be comfortable in our culture? What if Christ actually compels us to counter our culture? Not to quietly sit by and watch evolving cultural trends, and not to subtly shift our views with changing cultural tides, but to courageously share and show our convictions through what we say and how we live, even or especially when these convictions contradict the popular positions of our day. And to do all this, not with a conceited mind or a calloused heart, but with the humble compassion of Christ, making that on display in everything that we say and do. After all, isn't this the essence of what it means to follow Christ in the first place? In Luke 9.23, Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Talk about being countercultural. In a world where everything revolves around yourself, protect yourself, promote yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself, Jesus says, crucify yourself. Put aside all self-preservation in order to live for God's glorification, no matter what that means for you and the culture around you. Did you ever stop and think that the gospel not only compels us to confront the cultural issues around us, but that it actually creates the confrontation? This means that the greatest offense of Christianity to our culture is not holding a biblical view of homosexuality. It's the gospel itself. So how does the gospel create this confrontation? Well, first of all, the gospel says that we are not in control. The gospel's offense actually begins with the very first words of the, of the Bible. In the beginning, God. The initial front, affront to our culture is that there is a God by, through, and for whom all things were made. Because all things begin with God and ultimately exist for him, then nothing in creation is irrelevant to him. God is wholly unique, unlike us and incomparable to us, even though we were made in his image. He is of another kind, absolutely pure, and there is nothing wrong with him, no thing, nothing. He is without error and without equal. He is also good, and his goodness is expressed in his justice. He is a perfect judge, perfectly justifying the innocent and perfectly condemning the guilty. His goodness is also expressed in his grace, which is his favor shown to undeserving humanity. So knowing this, consider the confrontation the reality of God causes in our lives. God is creator, and so we belong to him. We are not, as the author of the poem Invictus writes, 
the masters of our own fate or the captains of our own souls. We belong to him, we are accountable to him, and he will ultimately judge us. That's why we so desperately need his grace. And now we start to see the gospel's offense stepping to the front. If you tell any modern person that there is a God who sustains, owns, defines, rules, and one day will judge him or her, that person will balk in offense. Any person would, and every person has. This is our natural reaction to God. Secondly, God says we don't decide the rules. All we have to do is to look at the opening pages of human history to see that the ultimate problem lies in the human heart. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Based upon his pure and holy character, God defines what is right and what is wrong and makes it clear to them that they will be judged based upon their obedience. In love, and that's important, in love, God tells humans the way of life and exhorts them to walk in it. Soon thereafter, however, the serpent shows up and begins his timeless chant. Did God really say? See, there's nothing wrong with the fruit on that tree. God just doesn't want you to become like him. And in those few moments, this role reversal occurs. The man and the woman go from the ones being judged by God to the ones who now sit in judgment of him. Humans and not God have now become the arbiters of morality. And when we attempt to usurp or even eliminate God, we lose objectivity for determining what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. Godless worldviews thus leave us with a hopeless subjectivity concerning good and evil that is totally and wholly dependent upon human constructs. Whatever a culture deems right is right, and whatever a culture deems wrong is wrong. But aren't the implications of this approach to morality frightening? Consider sex trafficking. Are we willing as a people to conclude that as long as society approves of this industry, it's no longer immoral? Now, before you jump up and say, well, we don't approve of that, well, somehow or another, it generates $9.5 billion in revenue in the United States. So somebody's approving of it. So are we willing to tell young girls who are sold into sex slavery that they and the men who take advantage of them are merely dancing to their DNA? That what is happening to them is not inherently evil. And they're just products of a blind, pitiless indifference that's left them unlucky in the world. Surely that's not what you would say to one of these girls. But this is the fruit of a worldview that many people unknowingly profess. You often hear someone say, well, do no harm to others and be true to yourself. That's my motto. That's how I'm going to live. Sounds good, doesn't it? This supposedly simple philosophy seems sufficient to make value judgments and moral decisions in all of life. There's a glaring problem, though. Who is it that defines harm? And to what extent are we to be true to ourselves? Wouldn't a pimp in northern Nepal 
claimed that he's creating a better life for a young girl whose chance of living was slim to begin with. Might he also claim that she has a job that he believes she enjoys? And what's to keep the pimp from arguing that he and this girl are helping scores of men be true to the sexual cravings that they have within themselves? Such a godless perspective on morality proves utterly hollow when faced with the harsh realities of evil in this world. Thankfully, the gospel is completely countercultural in this respect. For God's word tells us that God has beautifully and wonderfully made each precious girl in his personal image and that he loves her. He has uniquely and biologically formed her, not for forced sexual violation from countless random men, but for joyful sexual union with a husband who cherishes her, who serves her, and who loves her. This is the good design of a gracious God. Yet it has been grossly debauched by sinful humanity. Sin is real rebellion against a good creator of all things and the final judge of all people. Sex trafficking is sin because God is just and he will call sinners to account before him because he makes the rules, not us. And third, the gospel calls us to profess it. We live in a unique time in Western culture <clears throat> where the moral landscape is rapidly changing. And as a result, we have many opportunities to stand upon and speak about divine truth. May we not let the moment pass. Elizabeth Rundle Charles uh, commenting on Martin Luther's confrontation of key issues in his day said the following, it is truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at that point. Indeed, battles are raging over a number of social issues in our culture today. A couple of decades ago, Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote the following. He actually was a graduate of Hampton, Sydney, I, I learned. We as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life and death conflict between the spiritual host of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. But do we really believe that we are in a life and death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? Or whether or not those who do live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation? Sadly, we must say that very few in the evangelical world have acted as if these things are true. Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say that it is not there 
and that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world spirit of this present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. <coughs> May this not be said of our generation. May we not sin through silence. May we realize that not to speak is to speak. Ultimately, may it be said of us that we not only held firm to the gospel, but that we spoke clearly with the gospel to the most pressing issues of our day. Now, acting with conviction and compassion will require courage, to be sure. It's increasingly countercultural to stand upon unshakable truth in this ever-shifting time. The cost of biblical conviction in contemporary culture is growing steeper every day. <clears throat> and sadly, I believe that we are not far removed from sharing more soberly in the sufferings of Christ. Doubtless, this is why more and more Christians today are stepping away from the gospel. Fear is a powerful force. Leading more and more churches today to accommodation and adaptation instead of confrontation with surrounding reality. Some additional words by Dr. Schaefer are worth mentioning at this point. <clears throat> we need a young generation and others who will be willing to stand in loving confrontation, but real confrontation, with the current form of the world spirit as they surround us today. And in contrast to the way in which so much of evangelicalism has developed, the automatic mentality to accommodate at each successive point. My hope, and there is hope, is that we will meet this challenge. For really, it's not a challenge from Dr. Schaefer, learned though he may be. It's a challenge straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. who said in the Gospel of Matthew, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body or cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. In other words, Jesus says to all of us, don't be a cultural coward. We're going to have a time of communion now as we, uh, as we close. So let's go to our Father in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we know that you know this kind of a message is not easy. It's not easy to hear. It's not fun to give. But it's necessary. Because we can only read the paper or turn on the news and find example after example of our culture eroding from right beneath our feet. And as the quote from Burke says, 
all good people need to do to let evil surpass it is to do nothing. And so, Father, I pray now that you would give us a spirit of boldness. A spirit to take you out into not just the world, but into our city, into our places of employment. To be seekers for the kingdom of God, as Susan has so aptly put it. So, Father, give us that boldness. Give us the heart of a warrior. And help us to know that this isn't just some joking matter. That these aren't just words on a page in a book. And that if we refer to that book as truth, then these very words are part of that truth. And it says there's a battle that rages around us even now. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us the courage, the wisdom to know how to fight that battle in whatever way you have chosen us to do it. We're not all called to end sex trafficking or to single-handedly end abortions. But Father, we're all called to do something to deal with an issue or multiple issues. And so I just ask now for the passion to do that, that you would ignite a passion in all of those who are gathered here to take a stand for something, to take a stand for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, for this day and for all that uh, has happened. I pray that... Uh, all of the message that uh, is of you will remain in the minds of those who hear it and anything that is not of you will not. So bless each person in the hearing and the receiving of those words. Bless them as they go forth from this week into, or into, from this day into their week, that they would have a good week and that they would truly become seekers of others to pray for, to minister to, to touch in some way. For as we saw so very often, the blessing comes back tenfold to us when we will do that. So we thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>